0: The words that I'd like to direct your attention to are found in the book of Romans, and we are going to be reading uh, 8, verses 28 through 30. Romans 8, verses 28 through 30. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom He justified, He also called. And these whom He called, He also justified. And these whom He justified, He also glorified. Please pray with me one more time as we begin to look at this this text of Scripture. Lord, we thank You for Romans 8.0 in particular, and the incredible promises that are here, and especially this promise that stands out in verse 28. Lord, my simple request is that You would give us insight and understanding to this text so that it would become both an encouragement as well as a deep conviction in our life so that we will be able to withstand the storms of life as they come upon us. Lord, we ask for your grace now to, un, to, to give us insight and understanding into your word and help me to cause it to, to become clear and uh, direct my speech that I wouldn't say anything that's amiss, but only shed light um, upon your word and, uh, and bring a, a, a good, solid understanding of these, of these verses. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. Um, I I believe that I became born again uh, when I was a fourth grader, uh, ten years old, in Riverton, Wyoming. My uh, long story short, my uh, a Sunday school teacher was teaching through the Book of Revelation, and um, for whatever reason, to a group of fourth graders, and it was there for the first time that I saw the reality that Christ was going to return. And he w- there would be wrath. There would be indignation. There would be a separation of the sheep from the goats, so to speak. And I knew, there was a deep conviction, that when he came back, I wanted to be on his side and not the other side. And it wasn't fear. It was a longing to be his. And, and, and immediately, there was a transformation in my heart. And there was a hunger for the Word and a desire to grow. In fact, I would, as I would go to school on the school bus, I remember just bringing my Bible. In fact, I, when we had book reports, I would read the Bible for my book reports and my teachers thought I was a bit strange um, and I would share what I was learning in the book of Revelation as little as I understood, but because I wanted my, my friends to, to see the, the incredible things that the Bible said. But long story short, as I uh, grew up, um, there was a lack of discipleship and a lack of biblical teaching, particularly in the churches that I attended and really embraced a life of worldliness and largely in ignorance until my eyes were directed to Galatians chapter 5. Now I'm not preaching on this text, but even as we were singing, my mind was brought back to that moment when I read these words. I read... Now the deeds of the flesh are evident. This is verse 19. Which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing. And I read that and I'm going through the list and I'm thinking, good night, that sounds like me. He's describing me. And then, of course, then I read these words. Of which I forewarn you. Just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And it, it hit me like a thunderbolt. That they, and, and immediately, because of that, I read that word. It was like, I need to repent. I need to change. And then, of course, I keep reading. And it says in verse 22, contrasting from the fruit of the flesh, it describes the fruit of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And my, from that day up until even the present, uh, there, there's, there's kind of been this contrast. When I read the fruit of the flesh 30 years ago, I could immediately say, that describes me. But then I read the, the fruit of the spirit and I have to have pause. Because this is what should describe my life. And, they, and truth be told, it does often. But, it, but as you guys know me, it often doesn't describe my life. And, and I know you well enough too to know that it doesn't often describe your life either. And so there's, for many years in, 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 in ministry, there's been this question, why is it that Christians seem to be, it seems to be very clear that Christians should be characterized by the fruit of the Spirit And so often they're not. And that's troubled me and I've wrestled with it. Why is it that these things that we should be so obvious and natural aren't? What's wrong? And even more recently, something that's bothered me is in light of just seeing the direction of our culture and just seeing the direction of the world and just reading scripture on uh, uh, what it reveals one Another dominating question in my mind is, how can we prepare the church? How can, what is my role in preparing the church for dark days ahead? Whether that's the end times or whether that's just suffering. Because I know that you will face hardship. You will face difficulty. And I have a responsibility to prepare you for that when your dreams are shattered, when you face the loss of loved ones. I want to direct your attention really briefly to Jeremiah 12.5. Maybe you know this verse. He says to Jeremiah as he's telling him, you're going to face some difficult things in your life, Jeremiah. He says, if you have run with footmen and they have tired you out, then how can you compete with horses? If you fall down in the land of peace, how will you do in the thicket of the Jordan? And that's how those two questions that I'm wrestling with fit together. If we struggle to maintain, to live a life that manifests through the Spirit when things are going well, when our lives are relatively easy, when we have plenty of resources and we can come to each other with, with, with complete freedom at any time, and we fail, we stumble, we fall, and our life is characterized by the flesh instead, if we struggle in the good times, good night, what is our life going to look like when the good times are gone and it's suffering? Now, honestly, I'm very anxious for the church in America Um, because there's just such a romanticism. Even though as we hear anecdotes about suffering and difficulty, it's really easy to just think, oh yeah, I saw the movie about that, therefore when I face it, I know how I'm going to respond. But you also know that that's, that's that's a movie, that's an anecdote, that's a story. Just because you've heard the story doesn't mean that you will be able to withstand in the evil day. And so the question really burdens me if we struggle in the good times how will we survive when things get really bad and not only survive but how can we thrive and as we saw last week how can we even rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory and as we know it should be that way so again what's what's wrong well i am firmly convinced that understanding these verses in Romans eight, twenty eight through thirty is the key, is the answer to both those questions, and it's the key to joy and life. How we can abound in the fruit of the Spirit, and even abound in the fruit of the Spirit while facing and enduring a life of difficulty and even misery. These verses also, though, are a great synthesis of all the themes that we've seen so far in this sermon series on regeneration. And as we go through it, you will, I, I imagine, it, many of the, the sermons over the last ten weeks will come to mind as these themes are repeated. And as you as you recall, this, the, the purpose of the sermon series, the title of it is uh, Born Again to Worship. And the purpose is to explain what does it mean to be a Christian? What what does the Bible say a Christian is, and it's, it, long story short, it's, it's to truly worship God. A Christian is one who worships God, not just by singing, not just by coming to church, not by just serving, but they worship God by loving Him with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind and all their strength. Loving God is not just something we do, it's something we feel, it's the way we think. It's an all-consuming desire to live for Him and no longer for ourselves. That's what it means to be a Christian. And that's what we've been born again to do. We're enabled now to truly worship Him. But we also know that we're not going to fully do this until we receive our resurrected bodies. And so that's why we long for that day when Christ will return and, and we look forward to it. That's where our hope is set. But we can, in the meantime, we can be convinced that God is that work that he's begun in us when he causes to be born again, enabling us to truly worship day by day. He is continuing to conform us into true worshipers from the day when we were first saved. We are growing into Christ likeness. And that is the main point of these verses. God's aim in regeneration again is to make us true worshipers and that work that he's begun. He will surely complete. That's what these verses teach. So let's look first at the aim of our salvation, the aim of regeneration. Again, the the sermon series is all about regeneration. And so the question that probably immediately comes to mind is, how does Romans 8.28 connect to regeneration? Well, it's seen actually in verse 28 with the word called. And as you recall, there's a number of different metaphors for regeneration in the Bible. Circumcision of the heart, being born again, being made alive in Christ, a new creation. Well, called is one of the, actually probably the most dominant metaphor the Bible uses. And, and the, theologians refer to this as the effectual call. In fact, uh, it, if you look up regeneration in a lot of systematic theologies, it'll be under this term effectual call because this is the dominant word that speaks to regeneration in the Bible. And this is to contrast it from the general call. So there's two different calls in the Bible. There's an effectual call and there's a general call. The general call is um, the proclamation of the gospel to all peoples to repent and believe that they might be saved, that they might be forgiven for their sins in light of what Christ has done, that they would look to Him for salvation. Acts 17.30 says, therefore, having lo- overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. So there's this general call that's given. But we also know that not everybody who hears the gospel repents and believes. And often they hear the gospel, they might even know, they might even be convinced that it's true, and yet there's no repentance in their life. There's no transformation. There's no change. And so there's a, a general call, but also an effectual call a call that not only a person hears, but a call that, that really is manifested by God transforming their heart, causing them to be born again, giving them new life. So they no longer live for themselves, but for God. And their, God is their treasure and not just something to make their life better. But they live for Him and love Him even more than they love themselves. And so the call that is mentioned here is that effectual call or regeneration. Notice also the verse clarifies who the called are. The previous clause says that it's those who love God. So obviously this is, this is not referring to all people. So it's not a general call. It's referring to Christians, the called, those who've been born again. And it's interesting how... The love for God is used as kind of the defining element of what it looks like to be a Christian. Those who are called love God. And that makes sense because that is what regeneration brings about. It brings about love for God and not just a sentimentality, but the Shema. Deuteronomy 6, loving God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. True worship. That is the purpose of regeneration after all. Well, wait a second, though. You might be asking. In verse 29, doesn't it actually give a different purpose for regeneration when it says that the purpose of our calling is to become conformed to the image of his son? Yes, it does. But what I want to demonstrate to you is that conformity to the image of Christ is true worship. It is bringing about what God has created us to do. It is loving God with all our being. So let's look at that phrase. He has conformed us. His purpose is to conform us to the image of His Son. That word image is a loaded term. Think about how it's used in the Bible. Maybe back in Genesis when God created man in His image. Well, there's a lot to that term, but one of the primary uh, uh, nuances of that word is that uh, Adam was called to lead creation in the true worship of God. So being made in God's image was a responsi- came with a responsibility to lead creation and worship. Well, obviously Adam absolutely failed at that. Instead of leading creation in worship, he led it into destruction and death. And so Jesus, who is the perfect image of God, Colossians 1.15, became man precisely to restore that image that had been tarred, tarnished sorry, with Adam's fall. In fact, this is what Paul is referring to when discussing the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. He writes... Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, referring to Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So we all are image bearers, but we're really bad image bearers. We're not very good at it. And so Christ came to restore that image, to enable us to fulfill the calling which which we have been created for, to reverse the fall of Adam and enable us to truly worship. And I want you to see this in the book of Colossians also. Paul explains in Colossians chapter 1. Okay, it's still there. Sorry, I didn't know if I'd missed the slide. Paul explains in chapter 1 that Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So, he's the image of the God. And Paul goes on to explain that he has reconciled us to himself through the cross and restored us to our created purpose. And then notice in chapter 3... He says, therefore, Christians are called to put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created. And then he explains what this is supposed to look like. Basically, a life of obedience, a life of true worship. So this is my point. Jesus saved us precisely in order to restore the image of God in us. Christ became man not simply to forgive us for our sins, though that was part of it. It was necessary. But the fuller purpose was to restore us to God. Restore us to our created purpose. To love Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That we would love God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Like the Trinity loves one another. We have been invited into that. To experience that love. And in a similar vein, Paul writes in Second Corinthians 3.18... He says this, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the spirit. And notice also in Romans eight, back in Romans eight, how conformity to the image of his son is the same thing as the glory that's mentioned in verse 18 and verse 21. And moreover, Paul earlier noted that the image that we're be conformed to is the image, sorry, is the glory that we will receive at the resurrection. He says in Romans 6, 5, If we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. Complete, like Him. Philippians 3, 21, Who will transform our body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. And again, as we saw last week, this is why our great hope isn't in anything in this life. It's the end of our salvation. When we receive resurrected bodies, we will be conformed to the image of Christ and therefore enabled to truly worship Him as we were created to do. And again, so Christ died to... Finish the work of salvation so that we would be like him, like a true worshiper, just as we were created. But also, Jesus is an example for us of what a life on this earth, a life of true worship looks like. Because Jesus never once did what he wanted. He didn't, he's not like the rest of fallen men who live not for God, but for themselves. We're self-worshippers. Jesus never did anything for Himself. As He said in John 6, we read it earlier, that He came down not to do His own will, but the will of Him who sent Him. And this is what Christians are called to, what we're regenerated to now to no longer live for ourselves but for him. But we also know that we will not fully do that until we receive a resurrected body. So it's a it's a process that's begun a regeneration and that continues to move closer until we get Resurrection, the goal of your life, in other words, you were born again, not just to be forgiven. You were born again to truly worship. And therefore, the trajectory of your life should be an ongoing conformity to Christ likeness. That's why you were saved. So, again, this isn't just a, an expectation an expectation but this is the whole point of our salvation and this is why dying to self it's not asceticism saying no to your desires and 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 instead following god's desires it's not asceticism it's it's fulfilling your created purpose but because our culture is so permeated with this assumption that we That we can only be happy if we get our way. We're we're so immersed in this idea of self-satisfaction. It's very difficult, I think, even for Christians to even conceive of Christianity apart from our own happiness as far as how we conceive of it in our own mind. In fact, so many people become Christians because they think Christ died to make them happy. In some sense that's true, but their definition of happiness is not what they're going to experience. Christ never promised that, and, and that's why I would call any call to self restraint is usually countered with like an accusation of legalism. You don't think I should you know, watch this entertainment? Well, that's just legalism. Well, no, it's it's an encouragement. I want you to be a more faithful follower of Christ. My goal for you isn't that you would just be happy. My goal for you is that you would be Christ-like because that's what's going to actually bring you satisfaction, not indulging the flesh. But when we live for ourselves and not for Christ, we're just not moving forward in our created purpose. And what we're doing is we're quenching the Spirit when we choose to walk according to the flesh. And when you quench the Spirit, you're not going to have spiritual fruit. So, going back to how I introduced this whole sermon, I actually think this is why so many Christians live lives of misery and despondency and hopelessness, despite all the tremendous promises of the gospel. It's because even though they, what they believe doesn't line up with where they set their mind, and they have a, it's really hard for us to let go of thinking, not having this, I mean, I can be happy without having this. It's really hard for us. I'm just, just, let's, let's be honest. It's hard for me. But notice what Paul says earlier in Romans 8. I found this so helpful for my soul this week in wrestling with this. Romans 8, verse 5. But those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit... For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Because even, even though we're saved, it's so easy to set our minds on the things of the flesh and we don't realize that we're actually starving our souls from joy. We're starving our souls of love. We're starving our souls of peace because we don't want to let go of our hope in this world. Because it's so hard for us to conceive of life without that hope, whatever it might be. And so the purpose of regeneration is conformed to the image of Christ or Christ-likeness which you can also define as true worship not living for self but for him. And Christ came to, to not only free us from our our hope in this life and our confidence in ourselves but also to give us an example of what a life of true worship looks like. But I also don't want to overlook the second part of the purpose that's mentioned here in Romans 8. And that is that Christ would be the firstborn among many brethren. And what Paul's saying is it's, it was always God's plan to create a big family, a family of worshipers. Many children rejoice that they are children of the same Father, Romans 8:17. And if children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with Him in order that we may be glorified with Him. John, the Apostle John also exalts in this truth. He says, See how great a love the Father has for us, that we should be called children of God. And such we are. And for this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we're children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. See, Notice the, the end goal here. He's rejoicing in what they're children of God, but the goal of children is not just be what we are now, but what we will be. And we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. John's point is the best is yet to come. The best part about being children of God is yet to come. And I want you to see that when the Bible talks about adoption, the emphasis is not primarily sentimentality. This is one of the surprising things. I've heard so many sermons on adoption, and not a lot of them are good, but there tends to be this emphasis on just the, the affection of God for us. And it's not, God has tremendous affection for us beyond our wildest imagination. So I don't want to diminish that. But what the primary emphasis is not sentimentality. God's love is affectionate, but it's purposeful. We're going to be like him and love God like Christ does and dwell with God in overflowing joy and of and love from now into eternity. God's purpose in parenting us is not just that we would be spoiled. In fact, it's not that we would be spoiled, it's that we would become mature children. What does a mature child? What does a, a mature Christian look like? It's Christ-likeness. God's goal is not just to have affection for us, but to raise us up to be adults. Any parent with half a brain knows their goal is not just to spoil their child, to give their child whatever they want and demand, just to make their child happy. You know, a good parent would want their child to be happy. But the goal of parenting isn't that they would be perpetual, just happy children but they would grow up into being adults, responsible adults. It's the same thing with God the Father. He wants us to be responsible Christians. He wants us to grow up into likeness. because He's a loving Father. He wants a massive family of true worshipers who faithfully fulfill their created purpose let's go back now to that well-known promise in Romans eight twenty-eight, and, and I want you to see now and recognize what it actually is promising. So then we know that God causes all things to work together for good. The ESV says, and we know that though, for those who love God, all things work together for good. And so there's some discussion on, well, what's the subject here? Is it the things or is it God? Well, either way you translate it, the point's the same. All things work together for good because God is the one who is making all things work together for good. The point's the same. Okay, so what is the good that all things work together for? That's actually the key question, right? What does good look like? What does that mean? Well, I think as we've already seen, the short answer is it's it's Christ-likeness. Becoming true worshipers. But can you you think of any parallel statements in Scripture where you have the context of suffering, like Romans 8? Romans 8 is written in the context of suffering. Can you think of another verse that in the context of suffering, it speaks to good as the result? I thought of Genesis fifty twenty. As for you, you meant it evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. That was Joseph. That was Joseph speaking to his brothers who sold him into slavery. And the only reason they had a chance to do so is because he was being faithful to what the, what his father asked him to do. And not only... Was he faithful and then ends up a slave in Egypt, but he's has been accused of raping his master's wife, and he's only accused of doing so because he refused to touch her. And he's thrown in prison for 17 years. Why? 17 years. I mean, if you had that length of suffering, and maybe some of you have... At some point, you, you're going to have to ask, why? When's this going to end? God, if I'm being faithful, why is it one closed door after another, one disappointment after another? What good could come of this? Well, as you know, God was working an amazing thing way beyond Joseph's understanding. And the truth is same for you. And this is what Paul is saying in Romans 8.28. 28. You might not understand how God is working the suffering in your life. But Christian, you can be absolutely assured that He is accomplishing the purpose that He has designed for you. And ultimately, that purpose will be accomplished when you see Christ. And you may never see how God's working these difficulties for good in your lifetime, But also recognize that the good that's going to be worked in your life through these difficulties isn't dependent upon you knowing them. God's going to bring about that good whether you recognize it or not. So whether you've seen how God has worked trials or blessings in your life for good or whether you haven't, it doesn't matter. It still happened. God is working those things for good. That's what this promise is saying God is going to use every good and bad thing in our lives, especially the bad, to cause us to fulfill our created purpose of true worship. As one commentator said, the promise to us is that there is nothing in this world that is not intended by God to assist us on our earthly pilgrimage and to bring us safely and certainly to the glorious destination of that pilgrimage. And and we know that God is going to do that because God has promised to do it. And he's promised to complete the work that he has begun in us. If God starts a work, he will see that it gets accomplished. And that's the assurance that's offered in verses 29 and 30. The assurance, the assurance of God's completed work. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Let's look at trying to define these terms. Foreknew. That word quite simply means to know ahead of time. But the word occurs six times in the New Testament. Twice it refers to men knowing something ahead of time. The other four occurrences which have God as their subject, mean to enter into a relationship beforehand or to choose or to determine beforehand. So, that foreknowledge is a relational word. In fact, if you think of the word know in Scripture, knowing, that word to know somebody, is highly relational. I mean, we it's with the word that's used to... Describe Adam and Eve. He knew his wife and she conceived. And in particular, this not word knowledge is rooted in the Old Testament where God's knowledge of people is a manifestation of his covenantal love. Amos 3.2 Amos three, is a good example. When God says, Only you I have known of all the families of the earth. So he's talking to Israel. He says, Only you have I known of all the families of the earth. Well God knows about all the other families God knows about all the other nations he's not saying he's ignorant that they exist what's he talking about on you have I chosen to know in an intimate way to express covenantal love towards First Corinthians 8 three carries the same sense if anyone loves God, this one has been known by him so what it's saying here is our love for God is rooted in God's knowledge of us. So again, the knowledge is not just referring to God's omniscience. Foreknowledge is not emphasizing God's omniscience that He saw something way in advance. It's talking about He chose to begin a, 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 a love covenant with us even before we created. It's remarkable how many times throughout Scripture, love is actually tied to both regeneration and election. Romans 1, 6 and 7, those who are called are also beloved by God. Saving grace described in Ephesians 2 is attributed to God's deep love. The elect in Colossians three twelve are called beloved. 1 Thessalonians 1, 4 describes the parallels of the love of God with election. Right? Knowing brothers, loved guy God, his calling of you, or your election. And Second Thessalonians 2 13, those who are chosen for salvation are described as those who are loved by the Lord. And this is the point. God's choice to save us is primarily a manifestation of his love for us. So this word foreknowledge is about God's love. That's the primary thing that should stand out to you, not omniscience. It's his choice to love us even before we knew him. It's, it's like a li- the little boy um, who, whose dog has a litter of puppies, and he chooses to, to love the runt before that, that dog has any ability to do anything. He chose to set his affection on the runt. That's what God has done for us. chose to know us beforehand. And He predestined us. The, the word simply means to determine one's destination ahead of time or uh, their destiny. like That word destined. Predestined refers to one's destiny. Where they're going. Where they're heading. So God's predetermined the final destination of Christians would be Christ likeness. And I understand the rational challenges that, that come with this word. I know a, a number of you in our congregation are still wrestling with how do we how do we line up God's uh, predestination, his election with free will? and that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a it's a good question. I'm not going to try to answer it, but I do want to right now, maybe afterwards, we can talk about it, but i I want to just point out the point Paul is making. He doesn't bring up predestination in order to confuse us or to cause some sort of tension in our mind. He's trying to bolster our confidence in our salvation. So whether or not we can completely understand how all of God's providence works with our own will. Whether we can do that or not, the point's the same. God is going to keep us and he's going to complete the work that he's began in us. Our salvation is so certain it was determined even before we were created Before we've done good or bad, he's giving us confidence that transcends our understanding, so that we wouldn't that our that our confidence in our salvation would not be in our understanding; it would be in the one who saves and his promises. The word "called" it says those who he predestined, he also called. We already were familiar with this term; it refers to regeneration. He says, "And those whom he called, he also justified." Those he justified, he also glorified. The word justified, uh, I I believe most of you are familiar with. Paul spent a lot of time talking about justification earlier in Romans. In fact, it's one of the massive themes of Romans. And the word word itself just simply means to be declared righteous. It's affirming that one is now right before God. It's It's a legal word. And I think it could be helpful to clarify how all the terms that Paul is using here relate to one another. So justification, it deals with the removal of guilt upon sinners. When we're justified, we are declared righteous. Therefore, we are not guilty. If you're justified, Christian, there is therefore now no condemnation for you. You are declared not guilty. You are righteous. God has taken your guilt and imputed the righteousness of Christ to you. And nothing can take that away because he's done it. it has nothing to do with you. It's what he's done. So it deals with the removal of guilt, regeneration or calling deals with the removal of the corruption in our heart. Justification, the removal of guilt, regeneration, the removal of corruption so that we're, we we no longer are self-worshippers, but we're free to truly worship God. And glorification, or the resurrection, deals with the removal of the corruption in the flesh. Okay? Calling removes the corruption in the heart. Glorification removes the, the, the corruption in the flesh. And then, of course, salvation refers to each and all of these things. Let's look at the word glorified. Why is it past tense? Well, quite simply, it's just because it's as good as done. And we know that because of the trajectory of what Paul has been saying. Those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he's going to glorify. If you are born again and declared righteous as Christ, then you're justified. And if you're justified, you can be confident you're going to receive a resurrected body. And you know you'll receive a glorified body because it was God who chose you to receive a glorified body before the foundation of the, of the world. And this is, this is why it's called, these, these verses, sorry, verse 30, is called the, the golden chain of salvation. Because what God begins, God finishes. If, if, you, have, if you have experienced the, the, the new birth, that new birth will come to fruition. If you have the seed of faith in your heart, it will bloom into the flower of the resurrection. That's what he's saying. And it's here to bolster our confidence in our salvation, not to discourage us. The point is, if you're saved, it's because God did it. God always completes what he starts. And so, notice too that the word glorified actually brings this argument that that he began in verse 18 to a close. Look at verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And he ends his argument after all those verses by saying, what God began, he'll finish. You will be glorified. And in that day, you will see the sufferings of this present time. They're like momentary light afflictions. That will be true of you, Christian Christian. And if you're not a Christian, I just want you to see this is what God wants for you. God is not just simply wanting you to be moral. God is not just simply wanting to, to keep you from sinning. So he doesn't want you to sin, but He doesn't want you to sin because that's not you're never going to be satisfied in that. It's going to destroy you and you know it. You know all of the things that you pursued in your heart that you thought was going to bring satisfaction. You know it's like salt water. It Even though you're... You're thirsty. You drink and it just makes you more parched. And it often leads to addiction. And you know you're not happy. You know you're not satisfied. Well, it's because you can only be satisfied when you're fulfilling your creative purpose. God wants you to experience full satisfaction. And so if you want that, He says, Come to Me. He who thirsts, come, drink the living water. So that you would thirst no more. And if you drink, he will raise you up on the last day. I think a a, a question that may be going through some of your mind is, okay, well, if I know that God is going to bring my salvation to completion, no matter what I do. He's promised what he's begun. He's going to complete. Well, then why? Why would I want to work hard at Christ's likeness? That's like that's not that's not encouraging to me that that just seems to be deflating. Why should I make this my aim now? And isn't it just a waste of time? I mean, because I know I'm not going to make much progress. But when I'm resurrected, it's going to happen in an instant in a, in a twinkling of an eye. Why put forth effort now if God's just going to take care of it later? Well, I think an illustration might be helpful. I mean, this, it would be like uh, an NFL wide receiver asking, well, why do you want me to catch the ball? If, if I'm already on the team, I've already signed a contract. Why do you want me to go out there and win? Especially if I already know that our team's going to win the Super Bowl because we have you know, the best quarterback of all time. And we have the best line and we have the best linebackers. They don't, my, the team doesn't even need me. Why do I want to go out? Why, why not just drop every ball? Why not just sit on the bench? And if you, were, if you heard a, a wide receiver being interviewed and that's what they're saying, like, coach, why do you want me to put forth any effort? You would be scratching your head like, good night. That's the whole purpose. The whole purpose is to win the Super Bowl. Why are you even playing football if you don't care about the, the whole purpose? Well, God's saying the same thing, Christian. The whole purpose of your salvation, the whole purpose of being born again, is Christ's likeness. If you don't want Christ's likeness, why are you even in the game? In fact, you're probably not. If that's not your goal. Or. You've, you've been deceived into what Christianity is really all about. You've really missed the point. Pursuing your created purpose for true worship is the difference between a life of joy and a life of misery. It really is. Christian, when you, when you make that your goal... That You can have absolute confidence is going to be accomplished. But when you set your hope in anything else, chances are it'll only end up in misery. Because one, the hopes of this life never satisfy, and most of them never come to pass. It's the difference between life in the power of the Spirit, or drudgery of life in the flesh. A life characterized by love and joy and peace. Or frustration and bitterness. Difference between having all of your losses be gains or all of your losses just be losses upon losses upon losses. So if I could just be emphatic, if you are a Christian, the aim of your life is not a happy marriage. It's not to get a raise. Or a comfortable retirement. It's not having successful kids. Or leaving a legacy. Or outperforming the, the Joneses next door. God did not rip you out of the city of destruction in order to appoint you as mayor of Vanity Fair. God ripped you out of the city of destruction to get you to the celestial city. To get you all the way there. The aim of your life, likewise, isn't even to accomplish as much ministry as possible or to lead as many people as you can to Christ, as good as these things are. The goal of your life, Christian, is to love God in every thought, in every deed, to be consumed with Him and to treasure Him above all things, even as Jesus Christ showed us what that looks like in His life. And let's be honest, that kind of life, a life of true worship is not a life that your friends and family members are going to envy. It'll be more like Paul said, if we have hoped in this life only, we of all men deserve the most pity. A life of such worship will not be enviable, it'll be pitiful, pitiful until you're resurrected. Your neighbors and coworkers are not going to say, gosh, I wish I had their lives. But they will stand in awe and they will wonder, where is their hope? I want that kind of hope. Because they're not getting that from listening to a song. They're not getting that from... uh, watching a movie, they have strength of conviction that rejoices in the face of certain death. How can we have such conviction? How can we be prepared to lose all things, brothers and sisters? It's by committing our life now to Christ likeness, to no longer live for ourselves, but for him in everything that we do. You can be certain that when your life is on the line When, you're, when you lose family members, if you have trained yourself that the goal of your life is not holding on to the things in this life, but living for Christ, that, those losses will only be helps in your aim at achieving Christ-likeness. And your neighbors will stand in awe and wonder because when you lose your kid to cancer... Or when the career dreams that you have are now crushed. And you're compelled to live in a ghetto. Or leave the country you love. If you have this kind of conviction, you will be able to rejoice in the face of it all. Not because you enjoy the misery, but because you have absolute certainty that God is bringing about the very goal that you have for your life. This These are not losses, these are gains. This is God helping us towards the purpose for which we live. And you know with absolute certainty that even when you fail, He will carry you to the finish line. Because all things are going to help you achieve this goal. And this is why Paul ends this chapter saying, If God is for us, who can be against us? Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities. Nothing will ever be able to separate us from the love of Christ. You could add to that neither totalitarianism, nor radical progressivism, nor communism, nor racism, nor torture, no ruining our reputation, nor death. Nothing, nothing is going to keep God from accomplishing His purpose that He's begun in you. If our goal is Christ's likeness, all these things can do is help us on our journey. Arterdom will only be the the tip of the the jewel of the crown that we will receive. I mean, what better way to die to ourselves, to show that we live not for ourselves, but for Him who died and rose again on our behalf. What better way to, to, to get there than by literally having to die. And brothers and sisters, you don't have to be at the point of a gun to make that your goal or to have your joy in Christ. You can do it today when you have to let go of what your flesh wants because you know that God's will is much better than what you want to hold on to. As Martin Luther said, let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Luther's point is, they can take it all, but God will accomplish his purpose for good. Amen. Father, we thank you that our salvation is not dependent upon us. Lord, we thank you that our sanctification isn't dependent upon us. But Lord, we want to work out our salvation with fear and trembling because we know it is you who works in us to work and to will for your good pleasure. God, we want to be the people you've created us to be. We want to be mature children who long for the nourishment, the milk of your word, that we might grow up into salvation. Lord, even even if all, so many Christians and churches in our country are just infantile. Lord, without any sort of arrogance or swagger, Lord, that we still would grow up into maturity. Not comparing ourselves with other children, but comparing ourselves with you. Longing to be like you. Setting our goal, not just in in, in, in being a little bit older than the rest of the children, but God being wanting to be Christ-like. Give us such an overwhelming passion so that we will be able to endure the storms of life, the hurricanes of life, not just the gentle breezes that come our way. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.